Welcome to everyone getting up extremely early this morning to come to this lecture. It's very impressive. Uh, <coughs> and uh, <coughs> this is a somewhat special occasion today because of two or three things. Notably that um, our curator in the Ashmolean, Helen Whitehouse, retired just a few months ago. And uh, I'll be building on her work today. Uh, and uh, Liam McNamara, the new curator, started six weeks ago or something like that. And he will come here at the end of the lecture. And uh, the other very striking thing is, of course, that you may have noticed, you probably didn't as you came in, that one of the galleries is closed. And that has an inner gallery, which is also closed. And progressively, over the next few weeks, all the galleries will be closed. <clears throat> so this is your last chance to see them, because they're all being completely refurbished. And uh, with an amazingly accelerated timetable, they're supposed to reopen at the end of next year, uh, which we... Well, I, I don't myself care very much whether they meet this deadline, because it is a very tight deadline. Uh, so, therefore, you, uh, I'll be showing you some things that you won't actually be able to see today, but you will be let in to this room that has recently been closed, and so you'll be able to see some of what I'm showing you. Now, I'm going to draw exclusively on material that is in the museum, <clears throat> and uh, because of that, we have a sort of slightly unusual selection of things to talk about, but at least it, I hope it can show you that the museum uh, can give you an enormous amount and uh, I should say that the Ashmolean collection is uh, the world's strongest in a couple of areas, uh, mainly prehistoric Egypt and the beginning of the historical period, so from about 5,000 to 2,700, that sort of range. Uh, and it is also extraordinarily strong in material from the Amarna period, the revolutionary period, about 1350 B.C., uh, I'll give you just a couple of pictures from that. And then <clears throat> it is uh, very, very strong in material from the ancient Sudan. And we will see a little bit more of that. Uh, the museum has the only building from the ancient Egyptian and Sudanese world that is in this country. Uh, and in addition, and perhaps... Uh, so if you... Wait, can we have the lights down? Uh, so... That dog, which will become visible in a moment, um, is one of the objects, the late, late prehistoric or beginning of the dynastic period, um, which are very important, we and we'll have some more of them. <coughs> and you notice how it's a dog with <coughs> floppy ears and a collar. So this is a, a bred and trained dog, and uh, dog breeding was already a major activity of the Egyptian elite in late prehistoric times anyway. So <clears throat> there is a parallel with the modern world. Um, now, another very striking feature of the collection here is that it goes back such a long way. So I will show you <clears throat> two or three objects that came into the collection before 1700. Uh, but first, we have a map there. And the map gives you uh, ringed the main sites from which the material comes. Another very important feature of the collection is that the majority of it comes from excavations in Egypt. And so we actually know what it is and where it came from. And we can give some sort of context to a lot of it. Uh, and in the 19th century and up till about <coughs> 1975, <clears throat> if you conducted an excavation in Egypt you had a right to a division of the finds that came from the excavation. And people would fund excavations by getting contributions from individuals and institutions uh, that uh, then went to the cost of mounting the expedition. In return, they got a proportion of the division that the excavator had from the finds. And the Egyptians tended to take only a minority of the finds because they had a space problem already then. And so uh, extraordinary things came out of Egypt uh, in a perfectly legal and proper way. But since sometime in the 1970s, it's become illegal to export anything from Egypt. And hence, you can't build up a collection now. <clears throat> or you can, but you just get pieces from the art market or from old collections. So uh, we have Saqqara, which I'll mention briefly, uh, in the north, El Amarna, I already mentioned the place, 
Abydos. I'm going from north to south. <coughs> Abydos is the most important site for the beginning of the dynastic period in Egypt. Makada, extremely important for prehistoric Egypt. Koptos, um, we happen to have prehistoric objects from there, plus one later one I'll show you. Thebes, the capital in some periods in Egypt, and Hierakonpolis, um, the other extremely important prehistoric and early historic site. And <clears throat> here we have a couple of objects uh, which came into the collection in the 17th century. Now, the Ashmolean, as you probably all know, is the world's oldest uh, functioning museum with a continuous uh, tradition of being open to the public. Uh, what that meant in the 17th century, I don't know. But uh, let's deal with the object on the left, which is in a way more interesting first, because that object's a fake. Uh, <laughs> and so it, it belonged to Archbishop Lord uh, in, therefore, the 1630s, thereabouts. And Helen Whitehouse uh, traced its parallels and objects. It seems to be made in Rome in probably the late 16th century. Uh, and it's a, it's a pretty good fake, I think we have to say. And you have this, this um, piece of paper on the front with a letter which presumably identifies it in somebody's collection, maybe Lord's, maybe somebody else's. Uh, so it shows you, it actually gives you sort of layers of meaning because Rome was the principal source of Egyptian antiquities until uh, really a lot later, until the 18th and early 19th century. So it's an emblem of how things came. On the right, you have a fragment of a wooden coffin. And the wooden coffin <coughs> came in the 1680s into the collection. And that um, is uh, very interesting for us because people were, of course, buried in wooden coffins. It's a very fine example, uh, just a fragment. Uh, but we don't have many high-quality, in, uh, in-sized wooden, wooden coffins. The ones that tend to survive are covered in plaster. So it's an unusual object, and we have to remember that even in Egypt, where things are preserved in the desert, a great deal of the material culture has disappeared. So it's an important thing to look at. So is the next one. And the next one came in the same lot as the wooden coffin lid, <clears throat> and that is what's known as a table scene. It's, you see that it's relief with a blank area on either end. The blank area would have been inserted into masonry. And so it was an offering scene from a tomb of about 2,500. Uh, and it has the name of a king uh, across the top line of hieroglyphs. And that name is of a king of, who's only known from about two other documents. So as it happens, in the late 17th century, the museum already had something that Egyptologists find extremely rare more than 300 years later. Uh, apparently, stone objects like these would typically have been used as ship's ballast. So it was not <clears throat> a very prestigious thing at the time. But it is a very fine example, and uh, it comes probably from Saqqara, which was already by the late 17th century, early 18th century, a place that visitors to Egypt would go to um, because of all the antiquities. It was famed, for example, for its cemeteries of sacred animals. So those, those are the early acquisitions I thought I'd show you. <clears throat> now we move to pre-dynastic times. I, I gave you a minute ago 5,000 rather than 4,000. 5,000 is, let's say, the beginning of the entire period. 4,000 is the period from which I will show you some things. So we start with a couple of pots, and uh, these belong to what is known as the Nakada I period, Nakada being the name of the site I pointed out to you. And on the left you have the typical style of pottery there. The, these objects are both on display, um, uh, where you have a, a group of probably gazelles or other desert uh, desert animals, uh, and we believe that the uh, chevron pattern probably represents the desert, <clears throat> although we can't be sure. And that is the prestige pottery style of that period. These pots are known in quite large numbers because they were deposited in people's tombs. And on the right, you have the other prestige ware of the period, and this black topped red ware, a shiny form of pottery. Which it, and it's made black-topped by firing the pottery inverted 
in the kiln, buried in ash, which creates a reducing atmosphere. And some of these pots have relief decoration like this one. They're on display next to each other. Now, because I selected, I selected the theme of this lecture before I knew that the galleries were going to be closed and uh, that there would be all these revolutions happening. So uh, <clears throat> as a result of this, I ended up by giving you rather different material from the title, but I still think it's useful to... These are a sort of prelude to the artistic forms that people are more familiar with, and they are very important in themselves. <clears throat> so uh, people defined archaeological periods by their pottery. So we have here what's known as D-ware, for decorated ware, which reverses the colours of the previous C-ware, the white on dark. Instead, you have here red on pale, and the red on pale has a completely different repertoire of motifs from the earlier one. So there's been a huge change in ideas involved in this. I don't think we understand why, but um, we have somebody who's writing a thesis on animals in prehistoric Egypt, and he's collected hundreds of pictures of hippopotami. And the hippopotami come on the white on dark pottery, but they don't come on this. And you have here pictures of boats, as you can see, and the boats um, don't come in anything like the same form on the earlier pottery. Uh, nobody understands what this decoration means, <clears throat> but uh, the prominence of boats has to do with the Nile, no doubt, uh, and um, these may be things like funerary processions which would happen on, on the river, but we really don't know. Uh, and there are then some weird features. If you look top right and the photograph is uh, top right and bottom left of the same view uh, you'll see there's this sort of splayed figure which is presumably an animal skin that's laid out as maybe a standard or something like that and then you've got this extraordinary thing bottom right of uh, what looks like a group of feathers splayed from a vertical <clears throat> with a couple of palm fronds above palm frond is something that's been used as a sign of celebration uh, for many thousands of years and of course Palm Sunday is an example of that and it still is used that way in Egypt today for example so that pottery characterizes the period around 3500, 3300 that sort of date but you're dealing with a society that's changing very rapidly and uh, the something portable like a pot loses prestige and instead the prestige goes into heavier and more solid and more expensive things, such as stone vessels. A stone vessel is a very impractical thing. If you have a pot that's this size and weighs 20 kilos or something, it's difficult to pour things from it. But nonetheless, they're very beautiful, and the museum has a wonderful collection of them to look at. <clears throat> I, I've, they're relatively small. Most of them are not the 20 kilo sort. Uh, and it also went into things like large objects, notably statuary. Uh, so there are the oldest colossal statues in the world that we know. Probably older ones will turn up. And they date, uh, we use these strange terms, um, the decorated ware, the D ware with the red on pale, is called, is, that's the Nakada II period. The Nakada III period produced these statues. Now those statues are of God Min, and uh, when, in the mid-1990s, Min was made the first thing you saw as you came into the museum, if you look to the left, and it's uh, still so if you come in through the shop as today, uh, then um, the director of the at the time thought this was a little bit disconcerting. Uh, <coughs> uh, but uh, there are, in fact, three of these statues. The third one is in the Cairo Museum, illustrating the point that quite often the excavator got the lion's share. Uh, and you can see that he, they probably thought in Cairo one of these is enough. Uh, and uh, the British Museum uh, thought uh, that none of them were, uh, would be fine. <clears throat> and so they were offered first the British Museum, who turned them down, and so they came here. <laughs> uh, but a very striking feature of these statues, so um, the, uh, the penis from the statue, there is one preserved, which is in the museum's collection. I think it's not on display. It, uh, it, it was inconvenient to have it on display. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but uh, 
uh, you can see where it would fit. But the, <coughs> uh, the other thing you can notice is these pit marks all over the statues. And so those show that they must have fallen down uh, relatively soon, probably. And then they were used by people as sort of talismans. So you would go to the statue with a flint tool, probably, and you'd scrape out a bit of its substance, and then you would infuse it in a drink, wrap it in a piece of leather or something like that, and create a, something like an amulet or a remedy from it. And that's a practice which has existed for thousands of years, both in uh, Egypt and in many parts of the world. Uh, and so the statues actually give you a kind of history of how they were. Been, there's been more than one reconstruction of where, of where they might have stood uh, at the site of Coptos, <clears throat> but they were found in a much later context, so we really don't know. But uh, another important feature of them is uh, how they relate to later art, and we'll see a little bit about that in a minute. Uh, there we have the artist's sketch for the new gallery, uh, which is, will be constructed over the next year. And the new gallery is where the shop now is, which is one of the finest spaces in the museum. And you will get a decent amount of display space for Min there. Uh, and uh, he will stand on a high plinth because uh, obviously we're missing about the bottom third or so of the statue. Uh, and his head, we have a head, and so the head is going to be suspended right above. So we're going to see a vast improvement in how Min appears. And in addition to the two statues of Min, which you can see in the rooms, there is also <coughs> a third statue of um, a man who is wearing a heavy cloak. He doesn't come from the same group. Uh, and I suspect he represents a king, but we don't know. He's, his head is missing and his feet are missing. But he's, he's about the earliest large human statue in Egypt. Statues were very contentious. Uh, they, an older statue dating to the Nakada II period has recently been discovered, published by somebody from Oxford, and um, it was smashed into thousands of pieces. It was found at Hierakonpolis, and so obviously it caused offence. Uh, but we, we can't reconstruct what that means, but it was a life-size statue dated to the Nakada II period. Now, people felt that the style of Min and so on was very unlike what you had in later periods, which it's, is certainly true. We uh, should have pointed out that on Min's side here, <clears throat> there are details of a set of emblems which probably represent kings of the end of the pre-dynastic period in Egypt. So it, was, it belonged in some royal context. And then we have this given, illustrating the problems of um, defining things and so on, there is the statue which is known as McGregor Man. The Reverend McGregor was a famous collector of Egyptian antiquities and uh, his collection was sold in the 1920s <clears throat> and is, uh, is now in many places and we have McGregor Man. Uh, he's made of a very hard stone. He's about this high and he, I think you'll be able to see, I wouldn't swear to that because I haven't checked. Um, and pe many people thought he was a fake. Uh, he looked very unlike a lot of Egyptian material, and uh, people uh, often say things are fakes if they're unfamiliar. Uh, but he actually turned up before people knew the parallels for him, and so the chances of his being a fake are very slight. Uh, as you can see in the next set of images, which are a bit dark there, he is on the right. And then you've got um, a man uh, made of ivory, uh, wearing a very closely comparable penis sheath, uh, and he is uh, from what's known as the Hierakonpolis main deposit, which is the most important contributor to the collection for this period. So the Hierakonpolis main deposit was an enormous uh, group of statues <clears throat> and pieces of furniture and all sorts of things, uh, the majority made of ivory, but uh, probably there had been many other types of material there and they had all rotted away, and a certain number of stone objects. And so there were many hundreds of ivories. Now, when it was excavated, conditions were very poor, and in order to salvage the material, the excavators poured uh, molten paraffin wax, uh, wax over these clumps of ivories. Uh, they then were distributed, and the largest group came to the Ashmolean. 
and for many decades they sat there. A few objects were detachable, but others were not. And the problem is that the paraffin wax is harder than the ivory. <clears throat> so to extract the object itself from uh, the conservation matrix in which it is is extremely difficult. And this process has been going on for some decades now, both here and in University College London. And uh, the, he is an example. You can see the colour he is. That's basically because of the paraffin wax. But he's a very important object. Uh, um, well, there are quite a number like him showing types of things that we don't otherwise know. Then you have bottom left. That's a smaller picture of the same dog taken by someone else. <clears throat> a woman in a cloak. And cloaks are very important because... If you look at uh, later Egyptian art, typically people are wearing very few clothes, and people assume the Egyptians went around like that, but it's more probably a convention. Uh, if people were already wearing cloaks in prehistoric times, there's no reason why they should have stopped doing that. And um, it does get cold in Egypt, and, there are, and cloaks show you've spent a lot of money on cloth and things like that. So there are many reasons why you should actually wear a cloak. So that is an important piece of evidence. You have also uh, a very fine boat there. And there are several hundred of these ivories in the collection, which Liam McNamara, the new curator, he's working on those materials. Uh, and then we have this known as the two-dog palette, also from the Hierocompolis main deposit. Uh, and uh, I should say one more thing about the deposit, because we, re we really don't understand the function of this deposit. It's clear that objects that were very widely spread in date were, were deposited in what was later a temple area at Hierocompolis. But whether it was a temple at that date is not clear, and what the precise date was is also not clear. It must have been deposited, in my view, no later than about 2700. <clears throat> but um, an object like the two-dog palette was old at that date. It was, if it was as late as 2700, it might have been 500 years old. Uh, you have a clear trace at the top that it had been repaired, and then the repair had failed at a later date, so it was a kind of heirloom. And it shows this extraordinary mass of animals, and on the side which has the depression on it, you have dogs uh, hunting the animals. On the other side, you have fan some fantastic animals, a winged griffin, and you also have, bottom left, a figure um, of, um, which is human from the shoulders down, playing a flute, uh, but with an animal mask or an animal head. Uh, and so it represents something like the, um, <clears throat> the taming of animals. And it probably stands for the idea of taming chaos, but we can't be sure of that. Uh, and the, palette, the idea of the palette is that in that central depression you would grind some sort of um, pigment which would then be applied to the body and the body could be the body of a human being or it could be the body of a statue, for example. Uh, so it could be used in a cult or it could be used to deck out the ruler, something of that sort. <clears throat> Rulers in that period also would give... Uh, the, you really can't see this one, but I'll tell you about it... Um, uh, they would give their favoured people uh, sort of tokens of their, their esteem. And the, the esteem takes the form of these knives, which uh, we will see in one second. <clears throat> uh, so uh, there is a drawing of an area of it. Wait. And there is um, the knife itself. Um, so... Uh, these knives are made of flint. They are the highest achievement of the flint artist. <clears throat> and they're called ripple flake knives because of the pattern on the surface. Uh, and the decoration on it, which, as I say, you can't see, uh, is, shows a set of captives. So it represents the idea of conquest. And we have a number of parallels for that. Now, another... Uh, th th these are motifs which came and went... Uh, rather fast. Sorry, that's photograph two. And then you've got this group here of objects which are of rather uncertain character. Um, you've got this extraordinary ivory with an absolutely perfect circle cut through it, and there's its profile on the left. And then you have these objects which look like the handles or something like that. 
and they have these, this relief decoration on them in registers uh, with something like what I showed to you as a, as a mountain pattern is here made into a decorative pattern separating the registers. So probably, again, that represents the desert terrain, but we can't be sure. And you, uh, you've got the registers of animals on both of those and then a, just a pattern on the other side. And so you have elephants. Elephants were very important in Hierakonpolis. People actually <coughs> buried their tame elephants there. And to create a burial for an elephant is a non-trivial task. Uh, <coughs> so, uh, and then top left you have a weird animal which I can't decide. I think it's probably a felid of some sort uh, from its ears. But it could be a canid. Uh, so uh, either the dog or the cat family. Uh, <coughs> but the thing that really does look to the future in artistic terms is this use of register composition. And so that, this brings us to roughly the end of the pre-dynastic period in Egypt, which therefore we say for convenience about 3000 BC. Uh, you have new works coming along which are entirely different in their organization. Uh, but they also look to the past as well as the future. So in the terms of the past, the most important thing is simply that uh, the premier weapon of pre-dynastic Egypt, prehistoric Egypt, was the mace. And <clears throat> so you have mace heads, which are in pieces of hard stone, and they can be uh, disc-shaped. Uh, so you have a, uh, just a flat object, which will be extremely vicious. And there's one on display in the museum with its handle, <clears throat> and then you have these pear-shaped mace heads, as these ones are called, which, uh, if they're big enough, they will do just as much damage. Uh, and this one, however, this is the scorpion mace head, as it's known. It is, it's on display, kind of. Uh, I say kind of on display because it's in process of being moved because of the closing down of the galleries, and it was moved temporarily into the gallery where it's not lit, I'm afraid. <clears throat> uh, but it's, you can see it, nonetheless. It's about this high. So it's altogether larger than you could use as a real mace. And it has this decoration on it. Uh, that's, as you can see, about a third of the original survives. Uh, it's easier to look at the decoration in a drawing. It shows the king of Egypt, and he's got a couple of hieroglyphs in front of him. And it's got this register composition with sub-registers. And then he's standing on a watery, a line that's watery underneath him. And then beneath that goes off into waterways uh, with scattered buildings and a palm which has a stockade around its base, people working on the waterways, a boat. Uh, you can just see the front prow of the boat there. And then there's some sort of celebration going on off picture to the left. <clears throat> he seems to be performing a ritual and it's agricultural and in some way he is holding a hoe. Now that, and then I should explain the top for a moment. That shows a set of standards. The standards in some way represent the king. Uh, it's been flattened out to be drawn, obviously. Uh, and the standards um, have uh, lapwings hanging from them. Lapwings represent subject people. So this is not very friendly. <coughs> um, but you've got all the conventions of um, historic Egyptian art are there in a very free and creative way uh, so that you put together... Uh, motifs which you organize by scale in order to create meaning for the composition so the king is bigger than anyone else. You have a couple of hieroglyphs there, so writing has already been invented. It was probably invented about a couple of hundred years earlier, and this is therefore a, a slightly later phase in its development, but we, we have gaps in our knowledge here. So that's the scorpion mace head, and then we have the Nama mace head, which is perhaps a generation later. <clears throat> and there it is, three photographs, and there, again, is the drawing. And so this shows, um, again, in registers, you've got some sort of ritual uh, where the king is sitting uh, in this uh, dais structure, this podium. Uh, he's got fan bearers and courtiers behind him. He's got people coming towards him. Uh, on the lowest register by the steps is um, a enumeration of booty and then uh, you've got animals in a kind of pen on the right, we don't understand that the people in the middle there are probably captives 
Uh, and we, so we can more or less make sense of much of what's going on. Now, uh, I said it was the Nama Mesa. King Nama uh, is most famous for his palette. That, too, comes from the Hierapolis main deposit, but it's in the Cairo Museum. And uh, people said that Nama was the first ruler of a united Egypt. In my opinion, that's not a meaningful statement. Uh, but uh, he is a completely crucial king. He marks the end of this development um, from uh, the production of all these ivories and things like this, and also uh, the creation of these stars of registered composition and so on. And he clearly was king of all of Egypt and parts of Palestine too, or at least his name has been found at quite a few sites in Palestine. So uh, that is, those two are absolutely crucial objects there, um, objects that are uh, central to the study of ancient Egypt. Uh, but that tradition then disappears with those two objects. So register composition and things like this is no longer being placed on these small, relatively small things. The Nama Meset is quite small. It's about this size. Um, instead, it probably migrated to temple walls and to painting and maybe to wooden objects and other things that we don't have. Uh, and so we now skip down two or three hundred years. We get to King Hasahem, the last but the last king of the second dynasty in Egypt. Uh, and this is one of the two oldest royal statues that survive in any reasonable state. I did say that this large, much larger one upstairs, I think, is probably also a king, but we can't show that. Uh, but that is definitely King Khasekhem. His name is written on it. Uh, it's a relatively small statue. It's about this size. And there are two of these statues, the other ones in the Cairo Museum. Uh, and a, re a really extraordinary feature of the statue is what's on the base. So here you have on the front uh, an enumeration uh, of people uh, seemingly from the delta in Egypt. The emblem on the far right uh, would, should represent the delta. And there are 47,209 of them. And if you look at the lower pictures, you'll see that none of them are in a very pleasant state. Uh, so this represents defeated captives. And there's extraordinary freedom in uh, creation of hu the human figure and so on in this. It's as if, if you go back to the statue itself for a second, the statue is really quite rigid in uh, its design. And this, it's got pretty much all the features we associate with later Egyptian statuary. <clears throat> but round the base, you have these, um, this amazingly free composition. And it reminds us, I think, that people were creating compositions, again, on media, like painting, papyrus, and so on, which mostly doesn't survive. And so this is done, and the freedom of the composition is probably there to express the abject surrender of the captives. Now, uh, all the evidence is that you shouldn't take that fi figure of 47,209 47, very seriously, uh, that uh, people invented statistics in antiquity as they do today. Uh, <coughs> uh, and so uh, this is representative of the defeat. The Egypt goes through a brief period of division, it seems, and Khasahem is asserting that he's defeated his enemies in the north. So he brings nearly to an end the, um, the earliest developments. But we then have here uh, a little conundrum for you. This is another ivory from the Aracompolis main deposit. It shows a woman. It has this fundamental feature of Egyptian statuary and of uh, relief decoration where you can do it. The left leg is forward. You can see that, I hope, on the bottom left. And she's really remarkably finely made. Uh, and uh, she probably belongs to the beginning of the dynastic period, but we have no parallels for things like this, except among the ivories themselves, and this means that it's nearly impossible to date them. However, Oxford does have the world's most advanced radiocarbon laboratory, and uh, in the past, people wondered whether you could date the ivories by radiocarbon dating, and um, in the past, they actually tried to sample them and see if you could get suitable material for dating, and the answer at that date was no, uh, because the conservation that's been done uh, makes this very difficult. 
But uh, there's been huge advances over the last 10 years or so in radiocarbon techniques. So Liam McNamara is thinking of going back to that question and seeing whether, after all, we might try dating uh, the ivories with radiocarbon. My guess is that they will prove to belong to a whole span of dates of some hundreds of years anyway. But an ivory is quite good for dating because the animal died at a particular date, and so you should have a very narrow range of possibilities. So uh, I'm now going to give you just one or two samples from the dynastic period in Egypt, and we, I didn't find anything suitable in the collection of images for uh, earlier periods. Uh, but uh, this, these compositions here just exemplify the uh, register composition, which is so characteristic of Egypt, which was invented, as you saw, in late pre-dynastic times. And on the, those are both stele, which come from the side of Abydos, probably. Um, and they represent uh, some sort of funerary mo monument. So you would set up one of these either where you wish to be in the next world, not necessarily where you were buried. You would have a little chapel near a temple, or they would be by your tomb. And your family could be represented. So the right-hand one, as you can see, has a great many people shown on it. And they, uh, the people who are seated are the people who are receiving the mortuary cult from the people who are standing. Uh, the sort of elementary uh, play of status that the seated normally have higher status than the standing. The standing serve the seated and so on. And you've got the same play of scale with a, an extra rule to think about here that the seated people, their heads are broadly in line with the standing people. And so if you do that, then the seated people are at a larger scale, obviously. Uh, but um, for the sake of composition, that's a very, uh, a very widespread rule. You rarely get people who, uh, whose heads are further up than other people unless there's a marked difference in status. And so the left-hand one uses differences in scale there. It's a, it's a slightly provincial work. If you look at the man on the right, his hand is as big as his head. Um, but then the hand is very important because the hand shows him performing the gesture which accompanies uh, the recitation of a formula, uh, of a, an offering formula for the deceased person. And the lines of inscription give the titles and, and name of the owner and also uh, the offering formula. Again, it's in the first two or three lines there. <clears throat> so those are just typical examples among actually thousands of objects like that that have been found. And if, if you go to the Cairo Museum, you will see them in their thousands. This, these two, uh, the, the, sorry, this group of paintings is a little bit later. It comes from a tomb at Thebes, which might date about 1500 BC or that sort of thing. And it's divided into several groups of figures, as you can see. So you've got this thick band, beneath which are some larger scale figures. You've got a much larger figure on the right. <clears throat> I'm not convinced that the figure, that that little fragment top right is necessarily in the correct position. It's very difficult to say. But they, they, these women are doing these amazing dances. And the men bottom right in the upper group are uh, standing there in a more dignified way. Now, uh, uh, so the men are presumably there to... Um, to be the organizers of the dance. Now, the dance looks as if it might be a rather frivolous dance, but it probably isn't. It's probably something to do with a funeral, would be my guess. And uh, you do have very elaborate dance motifs known. Children love this, this set of paintings, uh, and they try to, uh, when they come to the museum, they try to imitate the poses <laughs> and things like that. <clears throat> but um, it's, it's an extremely rare example. If you look next to the men there, there's a woman who actually doesn't have her feet on the ground at all, for example. That's a very rare feature of um, things in Egyptian art. So that's, this comes from the decoration of a tomb at Thebes. And uh, it, it's a very rare example, which I suppose is why they decided to, to bring it to England. Probably the tomb itself was in such a state of decay that they couldn't stay there. Uh, now, I mentioned the Amarna period earlier. The Amarna period is the radical period of stylistic transformation in Egyptian art. It, there are uh, both stylistic innovations and innovations in the way that the uh, reliefs 
um, compositions are laid across the walls and from one wall to the next. But it's a very short-lived change in style, uh, about 15 years. <clears throat> and so here you have Nefertiti, who is famous for her bust, of course, uh, off making an offering to the sun god. The sun god is the line, the diagonal line coming down towards her at the top, which terminates in a hand. I don't know if you can see that. Um, and so the, uh, the god is not represented as a human form, which is the normal way a god is shown in Egypt. He's represented as the sun with his rays coming out and then these emblematic hands. And that is a, actually a fragment from a column. It's slightly curved. And this, this comes from the site of Amarna, the new capital of Akhenaten, which was built over a period of about a decade and then was destroyed uh, maybe a decade later. Uh, and uh, most of the relief from there was probably reused in lime kilns or in foundations of other buildings. And so, uh, although quite a lot is known, it's relatively rare, but still rarer is this. <coughs> and that is the painting uh, which comes from a palace building at Amarna and it shows two princesses there the detail above and there is the wider context beneath um, the far left you can just about see as a human figure I'm afraid that the light isn't great uh, and if you look across there you have a pair of feet with sandals uh, on the right and that's Akhenaten the king and then you've got uh, a semicircular line, and that is the dress of Nefertiti, who was sitting on the floor in front of him. Uh, so this was actually at a very large scale. It was at least life-size, uh, but the princesses were scaled down enormously, and those are two of the, we assume, the youngest princesses. You've got three sets of legs there, uh, which are the slightly older princesses. There were six of them. I don't know, maybe this was done before the sixth one was born, or something like that. And uh, there are very few wall paintings known from Egypt from any non-tomb context. Uh, and it looks as if it was a very great privilege at this date to have wall paintings because lots of elite houses at the site have been excavated and they don't have paintings. So this was a palace phenomenon. And it shows you extraordinarily rich decoration techniques and styles, which uh, were certainly not new at this date. We know that they existed beforehand, but it's a whole area of creativity that is largely lost to us. Uh, then we have here um, a very unusual object. That's probably about just over half of the original object, perhaps a bit more. Uh, it shows a procession of um, the god, the god, uh, sorry, the goddess Isis, out from the temple at Coptos. So it's from the same place as the Min statues come from. Dates to Ramesses II, so about 1250 BC. And uh, you've got the, uh, a text of which only about half is preserved across the bottom. Uh, and the, what happens is that the deity comes out of the temple and is. Um, carried in a bark, which you can see, and the, uh, the bark has a shrine on it, the, the statue of the deity is inside the shrine, and the shrine itself is covered in cloth, which is that diagonal line there. Uh, and the deity delivers an oracle, and the oracle is delivered by movements of the shrine. So the priests have the shrine on their shoulders, and they are inspired by the deity to move forward or back or to bend or whatever it may be. This is something that um, uh, somebody I know who was working in the Himalayas, he said that the god there today does the same. And the god got very cross with him taking photographs and expressed it in that sort of way. Uh, uh, so uh, th this, uh, is this text here records the appointment of the person who put it up to a priesthood. And this person is known from a number of monuments. His name is not here, but my colleague Elizabeth Froude, here is her book, in which you can read a translation of the Stila, um, uh, deals with the texts of this period, and this is an important example, which happens to be in the collection. And uh, we've got a number of other scenes of this, uh, of this sort on other monuments showing the the god's bark coming out in procession like that. And so the rule is that only the king can be shown performing the cult of the god, hence that is Ramesses II on the far right. 
so then we move to another genre of object. Uh, and these, I think, are slightly more visible here than in the display, but they are on display. Uh, so you have from the site of Daryl Medina the village in which the men who constructed the royal tombs in Thebes lived. Uh, some thousands, well, overall there might be as many as 20,000 flakes of limestone or sherds. Uh, the generic term is ostraca. Uh, and they are typically inscribed with writing in ink, but there are plenty, probably a couple of thousand, which have decoration on them, not or, or decoration mixed with writing. And here are two of these. And these are, in quotes, satirical or uh, folk story type things. You've got on the left uh, a, um, a hyena sitting at, uh, in a dignified way receiving offerings. And on the right, you've got a cat uh, and a, I think it's a baboon. No, sorry, it's a dog, a cat and a dog, uh, again with a, a table and offerings between them. And uh, it, there was clearly a, quite a large um, element of animal fable around. We don't have animal fables in narrative form until uh, more than a thousand years later. So it's very interesting to see that you have different styles of tradition in pictorial and in, and in uh, verbal form. Well, no doubt there was a verbal accompaniment to this, but we don't know that. Uh, and the... Uh, there are very learned conventions here, as it were. If you look, the seat on which the hyena is sitting is a cross-legged, it's a demountable stool, a folding stool, which has duck's heads as it, uh, the termination of the legs. This is an object of great distinction. And so this shows you the very high status of this hyena in the story, as it might be. <clears throat> so the Egyptians weren't always doing sort of serious and... Um, and priestly or religious things. They were doing other things too. Now, I mentioned that we had the only building uh, in this country from ancient, the ancient Egyptian Nubian world, and that is, the again, the architect's sketch for how it will look when the galleries have been transformed. You'll be able to see it in a minute. Um, so it is a shrine that comes from the... Uh, the uh, hall of the temple of Kawa, uh, one of several temples at Kawa, which um, I'll show you it on, the, on a map in a moment, um, and uh, various other objects from Kawa also in the gallery. Uh, it's been there since the late 1930s, and we have photographs of it being packed up. And you may think, well, it's a bit much simply to take a whole building from a site you've been excavating. And I think the it is true that the Sudan was terribly despoiled by excavators. Uh, but I have to say that on site, there's nothing to see now. And there are terrible conservation problems with ancient Sudanese buildings because they're built in very soft sandstone. And the prevalent extremely high winds mean that any ancient stone, work, uh, any ancient stone carving just gets obliterated by the wind. Apparently, I've not been to Kawa, but apparently the rest of the building is now just covered in sand, which is probably good for it. Uh, but it, you can't go and see anything at Kawa unless you're prepared to pull the sand away from the monument. Uh, so there is Kawa on the map. It, um, was, um, it was part of the extension of Egypt, uh, which went as far as quite near the fifth cataract, right at the bottom of the map there. Uh, in uh, the New Kingdom from 1500 to 1000, very roughly. And then a separate kingdom emerged from a, perhaps the late 8th century BC, about 700 and something. Sorry, I, I correct myself, I can never do these dates. Uh, more like the late 9th century, the, the late 800s. We get to know it about the middle of the 8th century. Uh, and the great, the most famous king was Taharqa, who's uh, uh, whose uh, shrine is what's here. Uh, and Taharqa was the last but one king of that dynasty. That dynasty conquered Egypt and became uh, very highly Egyptianized in culture. And, but there are lots of also distinctive local features to the shrine. So there it is, uh, as it now looks. It's not going to be moved. Uh, it will be a fantastic conservation challenge to try to move it. Uh, so it will stay put. It also has to be on a solid support underneath, of course. Uh, and uh, it's, 
it's a uh, structure which was added to this hall, but uh, only a few years after the, term was, the temple was built. So it's pretty integral. And it, there must be some idea that you go into this outer hall of the temple and then you go into this shrine where, shall we say, robing takes place or people are purified or something of that sort. We can't tell. Um, and there we have the site of Kawa. This is the only point where we leave the Ashmolean. And in the lower image, you can see the shrine uh, in its original position. And that explains to you why it has these curves on it, because it was fitted in among the columns. Uh, in the upper part of the image, that's the view into this hall, uh, which shows you where the shrine was. And then on the right, you've got the other feature that we have in the museum, uh, together with the shrine. So on the, uh, the top right, you've got the wall of the shrine. Then to the left of it, you've got another piece of wall with a doorway and a small, a small piece which we'll come to in a moment. There is a sample of the relief from one side of the shrine and a careful observation of it shows that it was all painted in antiquity as reliefs normally were and that is a figure of the god Amun and it says Amun of Gem Aten uh, and Gem Aten or Amun Re, sorry I didn't get that quite right, uh, uh, Gem Aten was the ancient name of Kawa, and that links us back to Amana because places were only named with Aten during the period of Akhnaten, so the revolutionary period of now about 700 years earlier. Um, and uh, so we can safely say that the site of Kawa was probably founded or refounded at that date. Now, uh, people have gone back to explain other parts of Sudan in uh, the last couple of decades, and a tremendous amount of new information is coming out which show that the Egyptians built a number of temples there in this earlier period, which largely don't survive, but we will see something about that in a second. So there is the other element that I talked about. The, it's the wall of Aspelta, uh, which you can see in the rooms in a moment. Um, and Aspelta is a king of about 600 BC, so uh, two or three generations later than Tahaka. Uh, and by throwing this wall between the columns, he created a second shrine there. And that too came to here. There is a rather poor pair of photographs showing it in the, in the uh, rooms as it now is. Uh, you'd need a much more powerful light to get a decent photograph. So... Uh, there are the drawings of the reliefs in the publication. Uh, and uh, you, there's a lot that's distinctive about the style. The style by this date has, is beginning to depart from an Egyptian style anyway. But this Kushite relief has the characteristic that the relief figures fill the entire height of the decorated area. And so they, they don't go in for this small-scale register composition that was characteristic of Egypt in general. Uh, and they also wear distinctive items of insignia. They love having very elaborate footwear and jewellery and so on. Uh, and then we have this extraordinary picture, which is from the publication, uh, which shows a column from Kawa, which was brought to Oxford. Uh, and for some reason, they didn't bring all the sections of the column. Maybe they didn't find them all. They had collapsed in, on site. And they re-erected it in 1932 in Queen's College. Uh, and so then they took that photograph. I'm afraid I don't know where those column pieces are now, but they're probably in the basement of the Ashmolean. <coughs> uh, but it's also very interesting architecturally or in terms of its motifs because that palm column capital is characteristic of solar temples and there was a solar shrine in the Kawa temple. So it all kind of fits together. So the, the, therefore you shouldn't believe in the, in the proportions of the column. Uh, I, I tried to imagine where that was in the college, but I'm not sure. <laughs> uh, and this, I thought it was fun to show you this. This is the relief in the hall next to uh, those, uh, the shrine. Uh, so this is the one thing that has nothing to do with Oxford here, because it's still at Kawa. Because you have this extraordinary procession of musicians which filled the whole stretch of the wall. Uh, and again, this very much simplified but much grander decoration that was characteristic of the Sudan. And uh, the publication shows you parallels with instruments that were in use in Sudan in the 1930s. Uh, and here is what takes us back nearly to 
uh, Akhenaten, you have, um, you have there a relief which has suffered from fire damage, which is in the museum, and that dates to the reign of Tutankhamun, and it comes from Kawa, so it's immediately after Akhenaten. Now, we've got just a couple of things to show you. I mentioned the ostrakon, uh, ostraca as a phenomenon. Here is the world's largest ostrakon, which is on show upstairs, and that has nearly complete the premier work of Egyptian narrative of the Middle Kingdom of, say, 1800 BC uh, in a copy of about 1200 BC. Uh, it's not a great copy. Uh, it was done by a student, evidently, but it's a very impressive object nonetheless. It's about this high. And it, came, it was donated to the museum, I have been failing to mention names, by Sir Alan Gardner, who was a benefactor of Oxford. He was a graduate of Oxford, but he, like many people in older generations of scholars, he was a man of independent means, and uh, so he actually employed research assistants and things like this. He was much more productive than today's scholars. <coughs> uh, and uh, then um, the excavations at Kawa were done by the university, and I think they were funded by Griffith. Uh, Griffith was the first professor of Egyptology, uh, and uh, Frank Llewellyn Griffith, uh, and he uh, was a very clever man. He, uh, he married two rich ladies in succession, and uh, they had no children, and he left um, to the university his collection of books, and he donated um, finds from Kawa and from other sites in Sudan and from... Uh, and he also set up the Griffith Institute, which is the university's Egyptological Institute, which ha has the world's largest collection of archives of Egyptologists. Uh, another great benefactor to the university of what I've been showing you was uh, Flinders Petrie. He didn't have anything direct to do with Oxford. He was actually a professor at University College London, but he was the greatest excavator of the late 19th, early 20th century, and he was very... Um, Oxford subscribed to his excavations and got these extraordinary donations. And the Hierakompolis excavation, for example, was not conducted by Petrie, but belonged to the same group. And again, the same sort of funding arrangements existed. Uh, another great name in this time, classical archaeologist, donated this object. This is a typical thing. It's, um, it's a relief, which is just on a piece of flat limestone about that size. Uh, extraordinarily delicate, showing the head of a Ptolemaic queen or possibly goddess. And um, it's in relief, it's also in painting, as you can see, and they've begun to carve the wig on the far left. Uh, but uh, as we can see in a second, uh, it's not just that. If you flip it over, you've got a head of a male upside down on it. Uh, and uh, then we... Uh, I say it's upside down because from the shape of the object uh, you can see that it must be upside down. And then written across the, the bottom there is the name Beasley. Now Beasley, Sir John Beasley, was the great specialist in Greek pottery. But he uh, was a bit of a collector anyway and he donated this object which he'd bought somewhere to uh, the museum. It's a big um, puzzle what these objects are. There are hundreds of them known and many of them are very beautiful. Um, they seem all date to date to the end of Egyptian history, and they apparently are training pieces, practice pieces for sculptors, uh, and obviously a huge amount of temple decoration was made, so they needed to practice. But the strange thing is that hardly any of these things have been found in excavations. They're all art market pieces, and so we don't understand whether they were donated to, to temples as cheap votive offerings or something like this so that they would actually be preserved archaeologically because hardly any come from archaeological finds, showing you the risks of um, uncontexted material. I thought I'd put up this. I've taken a lot of my pictures from this new book published by Helen Whitehouse shortly before she retired, which is, uh, takes choice objects from the museum's collection and uh, gives um, photographs of them and wonderful short descriptions and explanations. And on the left you have a Greco-Roman period, um, uh, period uh, flat plate uh, which is gilded uh, and that is, uh, that's the back cover and there's the front and back cover with the barcode if you can read it. Uh, and so that 
um, might encourage you. I also have a copy of the book here to show people. Um, and then we're finishing now. If you aren't in the Egyptian collection, as you won't be able to be from a few weeks from now, you can go to the basement area of the museum. Uh, and uh, there was this problem that the staircase that goes down to that level had this projection, which you can see at the top of that picture there. And uh, the uh, people got worried that people hit their head on it. So there had to be an object placed there. And so we have the high steward Amenhotep, which is a very wonderful piece of statuary. So he dates, as you see, I put about 1360 as his date. Uh, he made a quartzite, which is the hardest material Egyptians made statues from. And uh, he's a person who's known from a number of objects. He's there in the pose of a scribe. And a scribe is also a mediator. So people will come to the god, uh, sorry, come to the statue in order to present their um, uh, their petition to a god, and the and the owner of the statue will receive a little offering and will transmit the petition. And people uh, show a lot of reverence to it. So you can see that on the lap of the statue, uh, you have uh, a lot of wear. Uh, which is caused by people over many hundreds of years coming there and scraping it. And to scrape something off quartzite is not easy. So it does tell you that thousands of people probably used that statue over, over a long period. It's a very wonderful piece in many ways. I don't think it's where it's set up is ideal, but at least it will be out, outside on display while the Egyptian galleries are being redone. Yes.